I am not certain when the phrase, eat the rich, first appeared. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was in first century Jericho, aimed at Zacchaeus. So what do we know about Zacchaeus? When the author of Luke introduces him, he gives a couple of key pieces of information. Him being short is not one of them, just so you know. <laughs> The first key piece of information is that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. And the second is that he's rich. Now, despite this being a rather bare bones introduction, these two details actually give us a lot of information about the kind of person Zacchaeus probably is. The tax system during Roman imperial occupation was not like ours is today. Tax collectors, who were often Jews appointed by Rome, would place bids based on how much tax they thought they could collect in a given area. Whoever placed the highest bid would win the right to become the chief tax collector for that region. The winner would pay the sum up front, and then they employed underlings who, who collected taxes from the public to recoup the cost of the bid. So it's pretty easy to see how a system like this could be exploited. Many tax collectors gain massive profits for themselves by simply collecting more taxes than was necessary to recoup the cost of the original bid. So in addition to these profits, tax collectors gained a reputation as some of the most disliked people in Israel. It was not only that they were Jews working for the empire, they were also stealing from their fellow Jews. When writers from this time period make lists of the worst people in society, they put tax collectors alongside robbers and murderers. And Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. He's not one of the hired underlings just following orders. He's the one who placed the bid to Rome. He's the guy who controls all the tax collectors in Jericho, and he's rich. The author of Luke wants to make it clear that Zacchaeus is someone who has profited off the oppression and economic exploitation of his people. We are supposed to dislike this man as much as the people of Jericho. But as the story goes, when Jesus passes through Jericho, Zacchaeus is mysteriously compelled to see him. So compelled that he runs ahead of the crowd and climbs a tree. A remarkably embarrassing and shameful thing for a man of his wealth and power to do in public. Jesus sees Zacchaeus in the tree and, to the surprise of the crowd, invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. And perhaps overcome by this scandalous invitation to spend time with the Messiah, Zacchaeus pledges to give half of his possessions to the poor, and to repay anyone who has been defrauded four times over. In response, Jesus announces to Zacchaeus, everyone watching, that salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house. As he says, for the Son of Man came to seek out and 
to save the lost. Now there is a reason why I, or perhaps many of you, learned this story as a kid in Sunday school, probably with the song about Zacchaeus being a wee little man climbing the sycamore tree, but I have to say that. We tell this story to kids because it is simple and straightforward. Corrupt, rich man meets Jesus, repents from his sins, Jesus saves him, the end. The arc of this story, as it is often told, conforms perfectly to our theological expectations. There is nothing wrong with this story. In fact, there is good news to be found in this story, the good news that God can save even the worst of us. And yet, there might be something else going on here. There might be a different story we can tell about Zacchaeus, one that requires us to unravel some of our assumptions about him and people like him. But to tell this different story, we need to do short grammar lesson. So on, your, on the screen, you see the text of Luke chapter 19, verse 8. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Now based on this sentence, we should assume that Zacchaeus is going to do these acts of generosity in the future, will give, will pay back. These are future tense verbs. The problem here is that the Greek verb that is being translated is not a future tense verb. It is a present tense verb. So a better translation of what Zacchaeus said would look something like this. Half of my possessions I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I pay back four times as much. Now, if you are curious about why almost every Bible translation out there opts for a future tense translation rather than present tense, sit together at dinner and talk about it. Well, you can go ahead and take that down as well. But here is the point I am trying to make. Zacchaeus is not going to do these things. Zacchaeus is already doing these things. Already, he gives half of his possessions to the poor. Already, if his tax agents defraud someone, he takes ownership for their abuse of power and personally repays four times what was stolen. Before he ever meets Jesus, before Jesus ever comes to town, Zacchaeus has already become an agent of radical generosity. So the question is, how did Zacchaeus become this person? Maybe he heard that when Jesus began his ministry, he called a tax collector 
to be one of his first disciples. Maybe he heard that Jesus gained a reputation as a friend of tax collectors. Maybe he heard the parable Jesus once told about the good tax collector or about Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler where he told him that if he sold his possessions and gave his money to the poor, he would gain treasure in heaven. Maybe all of these things sparked an unraveling in Zacchaeus' life as he began to realize that it was possible for him to embody a new way We will never know for sure how Zacchaeus got there. But one thing is clear. Before Jesus ever got there, Zacchaeus has already been transformed. And no one had any clue because no one thought to ask. I wonder how often this happens in our world. How often do we miss what God is doing among us simply because we do not stop to ask? Because we let our assumptions about the other control and constrain our gaze. The people of Jericho believe they know everything they need to know about Zacchaeus. Rich man in position of power, say no more, eat the rich. But imagine with me for a moment what might have happened if someone had chosen to practice curiosity rather than judgment. Thanks be to God that Jesus showed up to dispel the judgment of the crowd, but what if someone had simply asked Zacchaeus a question? Why are you a tax collector? What do you do every day at work? Why did you climb that tree? The answer, I suspect, would have surprised and humbled them. Inspired by the radical grace of Jesus, Zacchaeus was leveraging his own resources and power to resist the Roman imperial taxation system from the inside. Generosity he was offering to his community was far above and beyond normal standards of reparation. And he was willing to keep doing it without any reward or recognition. He reminds me of how Jesus tells us we should practice generosity in Matthew chapter 6. When you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your alms may be done in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Zacchaeus is just one example of the sort of impossible possibility that Jesus makes possible for us. God is at work in all sorts of surprising and unconventional ways, and often through people we would never expect. The problem is that we are often moving too fast to notice. We are worried and distracted by many things. Slowing down, getting curious about something or someone 
often feels like it will keep us from getting done what really needs to get done. But God is waiting for us in those moments of curiosity. God is waiting to surprise and humble us, to shake us out of our preconceived notions and biases, and to awaken us to new ways of relating to our neighbor. Curiosity is holy. It is holy because it expands our hearts and minds and gives us eyes to see the world the way God sees it, full of wonder and beauty and impossible possibilities. I think the world could benefit from some holy curiosity right about now. A world without curiosity is one where the beggar on the street corner is ignored and goes hungry. Where cops shoot first and ask questions later. Where rockets and bombs are our chosen means of conflict resolution. But we can embody a different way, a better way, if we learn to be led by holy curiosity. So I invite you to try it. This week, I encourage you to commit yourself to curiosity as a spiritual practice. When you notice yourself leading with judgment, pause, take a breath, and replace your assumption with a question. Leave your dorm room or apartment five minutes earlier so that you can walk a little more slowly on your way to class. Take your headphones out. Leave your phone in your bag. Give yourself time and permission to be curious about the people and the things you see around you. Begin your day with a prayer for curiosity, such as this one by author Stephen Copeland, which I will close with. When I am tempted to judge another, or define them by their ideas. When rightness reigns over relationship. When my ego affects my ability to listen, learn, connect. Help me gaze into their heart and consider their circumstance, story. Help me not retreat amid disagreement and strife, but instead let curiosity be my humble guide as I venture deeper into another's world.